I'm trying a new Burt's Bees. What I normally it? just go for the original. I'm doing the cucumber mint. Mmm. It tastes exactly like this drink that I make, wherein I use like um, Sprite and cucumber uh, lime vodka. Yeah. And a little bit of Hendrix gin. Ah, uh, yes. It's really floral and cucumbery. It's really good. And it's almost exactly like that in chapstick form. We'll have to make that next weekend. Okay. Either Friday or Saturday. I can do that. Okay. I also need to go and get some of my gin because I realize I like dry gin. Do you want to tell the people what we're doing for Valentine's Day? And now I'm sitting here. What are we doing for Valentine's Day? <laughs> What's next Friday? Oh, all right, guys. So um, we are recording this a little earlier so that, you know, we can edit and then right. get it out to you all on time. Yeah, we're not one day next day people. Oh Some day no. we're not. Sometimes we're not even w- one week next week, people. Sometimes it's one week, two weeks. <laughs> yes, but anyway, for Valentine's Day, technically not Valentine's Day. No, it's the day after Valentine's that we're day. going. Yeah, but yeah, we are going to Points Pleasant, West Virginia. Yes, to go we're gonna visit go see the Mothman Museum. Yes, I'm super excited, and Grace is super excited. Yes, and yes. Yes. But yeah, those are our plans. So, speaking of Valentine's Day, today is our Valentine's episode. Yes, it's a special bonus episode devoted to Valentine's Day. special bonus episodes. Okay, well, in case you all didn't know, I'm Rachel and that's Grace. Oh, yeah, yeah. Forgot all about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm Grace. That's Rachel. Welcome to our podcast. Yeah, it's Myths and Misfortunes. We are a paranormal and true crime podcast. Each week we pick somewhere in the world and base our stories on that place. And or surrounding areas. And then there are episodes like today where we just do holidays. All right. Valentine's Day. So our sources are Britannica.com, Wikipedia.com, there are a lot of these, SmithsonianMag.com, Catholic.org, ScoopWhoop.com, <laughs> HuffPost.com, and that's it. So our theme for today is, duh, Valentine's Day. Oh, is that what we're doing? Nope. <laughs> nope, just regular any old day. Mm-hmm. Celebrated on February 14th in most countries. It was previously known to early Christians as the feast day of St. Valentine. While the day is a day for lovers, for or for most, most people, people, yeah, just literally showing you care, yep. St. Valentine was not a patron saint of love, despite what many would have you believe. I mean, I always thought he was. Not only that, but there were actually like three different Valentines, St. Valentines. Yeah. Um... The two who were honored are Valentine of Rome and Valentine of Terni. 
The most celebrated was the Roman priest Valentinus, who was arrested for marrying Christian couples and aiding those being persecuted during the reign of Emperor Claudius Gothicus. Soup's edgy. So edgy. And put into the custody of an aristocrat. Valentinus spoke with the aristocrat about how Christ was basically saving pagans from their life of sin. The aristocrat. Aristocrat. Did I put it? No, No. it says aristocrat. Okay, it's not me. (laughs) It's me. (laughs) The aristocrat told Valentinus that if he cured his foster daughter's blindness, that he would convert. And according to legend, he did. When Emperor Gothicus (laughs) (laughs) heard of this, he declared that the family and Valentinus should be executed. He commanded that they renounce their Christian faith or be beaten and beheaded. Valentinus refused to renounce, and he was executed on February 14th, 269. Yeah. That was so long ago. I know. God. In four. 96 AD, Pope Galatius, we didn't look that up, Pope Galatius marked February 14th as a celebration in honor of his martyrdom. Some suggest that the romantic aspect was taken from Lupercalia, a Roman pagan holiday, where men would run through the streets with strips of sacrificial goat hides and strike women with them. The women didn't mind too much because it was thought that it would make them more fertile in the coming year. Apparently, later in the day, All of the young women in the city would place their names in a giant urn. The city's eligible bachelors would then draw a name from the urn, and they would then be paired together. One source said for a night, and another said for a year. But regardless, they were temporarily together unless it was a match made in the Summerland. (laughs) Which is the pagan form of heaven, according to Google. Others suggest that the romantic aspect didn't come into play until after Chaucer's Parliament of Fools? Fouls? 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 We're good at pronouncing stuff. (laughs) Anyway, in which he mentions Valentine's Day and the mating of birds, which is something that Europeans noticed and emulated, you know, when spring, all the birds would start mating. Is February, February is not spring. It, All the birds would start mating in early, Feb- yes. mid-February. And then by spring. Yeah. Yeah. That's when all the baby birds, oh. Well, that's anyway. when all the baby birds start, you know, getting ready to fly off. Tweet, tweet, motherfucker. Uh, yes, tweet, tweet, okay. motherfucker. It's then that they began sending love notes. These love notes weren't called Valentine's until February 1415, when the Duke of Orléans, we're going <laughs> to keep that going, uh, wrote to his wife telling her that he was lovesick and said that she was his very gentle valentine. Aww. Thus they were called valentine's letters. Speaking of valentines, there are several other traditions that have become popular over the years. Here in the U.S., we give some friends and families as well as significant others gifts of candy, flowers, jewelry, cards, sometimes Literally just gifts. (laughs) I personally get a small gift from my dad every year, flowers or a movie or, you know, a CD. And he gets them from my mom, too. I guess kind of to set the precedent. You need this. Don't let anybody tell you you don't need a gift for Valentine's Um, Day. And actually, one year we made him a bouquet of his favorite chocolate candies in return. Oh, that's sweet. And he wasn't expecting it. <laughs> I'd like a bouquet of bacon or yeah, cucumbers. Those are a thing now. It sounds nice. 
Anyway, in other countries like France, they had a drawing for love where men and women would gather in houses across the street from one another and would take turns calling out to one another and pairing off. Men who weren't satisfied with their match could simply leave a woman for another. Rude. Women left unmatched gathered afterwards for a bonfire where they would burn pictures of men who wronged them and hurl swears and insults at the opposite sex. <laughs> this actually became so uncontrollable that the French government banned the tradition altogether. One nicer tradition is found in Japan. While in most nations women are on the receiving end with gifts, in Japan, women will actually gift the men they like chocolates. Oh. Then come March 14th, the men will return the favor. That's sweet. A cute one I found was in South Africa where girls will pin the names of their crushes to their sleeves for everyone else to see, but I would be terrified to do that. Dude, I can't even talk to the guys I like, let alone show everyone who that person is. Yeah, nope, nope. <laughs> Not everyone celebrates on February 14th, though. In South Korea, it's the 14th of every month, and in Argentina, they set aside an entire week in July in which kisses are exchanged for sweet treats. In Brazil, they celebrate Lover's Day on June 12th, and the Welsh celebrate on the 25th of January, where the men would carve wooden spoons or... Love spoons. Aww, that's sweet. That's so cute. In Valencia, Spain, they celebrate October 9th as the most romantic day. This is the day of Saint Dionysus, the patron saint of love. Mm. They hold festivals and parades, and traditionally, men will offer their partners a marzipan figurine as a token of their love. And that is Valentine's Days. Plural. Plural. <laughs> Speaking of marzipan figurines. You should see, we wrote this history together and stuff. And there's this little valentine. It says, you're almost as cool as Mothman. It's anyway, so cute. sorry, you were saying? No, I was just saying, speaking of figurines. Oh, oh. you got me a figurine. Oh, God, Not what is this? Not necessarily a figurine. Here, I got say. you this. Yay! Chocolate! Oh, oh my god, it's so cute. Oh my god, I actually really wanted this one. Right? Oh my god, because I, I saw these uh, when I went there with my mom, and oh, it's so cute. And I got the unicorn. Oh, <laughs> it's almost like I got you the unicorn. Uh, yes, <laughs> it Except is. you bought it. I'm eating the dark chocolate one. Oh, I love him. She got me a little plushy dinosaur lizard. Dinosaur. Uh, it's a, it's one of the Squishmallows. So soft. No, Hello. dragon. Not dinosaur. Is it a dragon? It's a dragon. His name's Danny. You will always want Danny on your team. Why? He's the king of games. Danny loves strategizing for board games, puzzles, outdoor sports, or scavenger hunts with his buddies. Aww. You're cute. Oh. Alright, so today I did the murder of Tara Lynn Grant. Oh. Yes. Sources. Wikipedia, Murderpedia, and Thought Catalog. Woo! And then I found a bunch of other articles that were just basically the same exact thing. So. Yeah. Stephen Grant met Tara DeStrampe? DeStrampe? DeStrampe. Sure. While she was a student at Michigan State University, he had recently dropped out of school to take a job with the former state senator, Jack Faxon. Get ready to just hate this guy right away. Jack Faxon? No. Or the guy? Stephen Grant. Oh, okay. So, Grant said that when he met his wife, she was 
beautiful. She had that big, like, 80s hair, you know, it was, like, super cool. The big 80s hair with, like, a whole can of hairspray? Yeah. I don't know. Well, I don't know if it was 80s hair. Maybe. Big, beautiful hair. She had big, beautiful hair. She was just gorgeous. He said his wife's appearance changed from when he met her. That she was beautiful when they first met, but I guess Mm -hmm. he didn't feel that way anymore. What a douchebag. Yep. Anyway, they stayed friends for a few months after they met, despite Stephen asking her out. She turned him down, saying that she kind of had a boyfriend from up north where she was from. And this is where things kind of got weird. Uh. Like, this is when they start getting weird for me, personally. Okay. When Tara's grandmother passed away later that year, she flew home to the uh, for the funeral. Mm-hmm. And he followed her. Uh, no. Why? No, just no. Yeah. <sighs> he said that he felt like it was the right thing to do to pay his respects to her grandmother. Dude, you never knew her grandma. He drove up and called her to tell her that he was there, and obviously she's surprised. So, <laughs> I, he, oh, so she showed up to meet him with her boyfriend, and he said it was awkward. Yeah, well, no dude. Shit, Sherlock. Yeah. He then proceeded to go to dinner with her family, and said that he felt out of place with her, so he drove back home. According to him, she called him the next day to tell him that she was in love with him. Uh, no. I can't. No, he. This guy. He must. The be couple delirious. then dated for a few months before Tara moved into Grant's apartment. So I guess he wasn't wrong. Grant said are that he could. Sh- are we sure she she wasn't just friends with him and they were yeah. doing things as friends? Yeah. So the couple dated for a few months before Tara moved into Grant's apartment. Grant said that he couldn't find another political job, so he moved to he moved down to work with his dad in a tool shop, tool and dye shop in Mount Clemens, Michigan. 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 Thank you. Welcome to Night Vale. All right. Stephen and Tara married in September of 1996. He said that it was rough at first because the economy wasn't good and that it was hard to find a job. And she finally got a temp job with a civil engineering and construction company. They had a daughter in 2000 and a son in 2002. Mm-hmm. Tara became really successful in her career and she began traveling all over the world for work. Grant said that it became difficult, but he learned to deal with it. Okay. On February 14th, 2007, Stephen Grant called the Macomb County Sheriff's Office in Macomb County, Michigan, to report that his wife, Tara Lynn Grant, had been missing for five days. What? What did he think she was doing for five days that he didn't report her missing, like, the day after? Yeah. The only reason I did this, it didn't happen, like... She didn't go missing on Valentine's Day, but he reported on Valentine's Day, so that's why I chose the story. In his account to police, Grant claimed that this was not the first time that Tara had disappeared, which was why he hadn't immediately reported her missing. Grant told police that he resented the time Tara spent away from home, and they often argued about who was going to run the house and who was the boss. Mm. He told police that they argued for several hours on February 9th after she told him that she planned to fly back to Puerto Rico a day earlier than planned. This sounds a little familiar. Yeah, you'll have heard it before. Okay. Yeah. Grant told police that he never got violent, but that he was the quiet one when and she would yell. Okay, I can believe it. 
After the argument, Grant explained to police that Tara went downstairs to the kitchen and he overheard her on the phone telling someone, I'll be right out. He watched her leave through the garage and get into a dark car, and that's the last time he saw her. He hadn't seen or heard from her since, that she left the house angry, and that his biggest concern was that he was going to have to explain to their kid why their mother wasn't going to be there like she said she would. Mm -hmm. Over the following two weeks, Grant made numerous media appearances, at times accusing authorities of harassment. Wait, accusing authorities of harassment? Yes. The day after reporting Tara missing, Grant was stopped by police and arrested for driving with a suspended license. Well, he shouldn't have been driving without a a suspended license. Right. He accused police of using the traffic arrest as an excuse to take him into custody to further question him about Tara's disappearance. Police denied the accusation. Mm -hmm. According to police, Stephen Grant was less than cooperative with them throughout their investigation. He refused to answer questions. However, he did agree to take a polygraph test as long as it was administered by someone other than the police. Yeah. He was in the media a lot about this. He really acted like... Always tearful in the media, talking about how he really wanted to come ho- her to come home, but thought like she genuinely just walked out on him. Yeah, like he he said that he w- that's really what he thought. However, he also really went out of his way to slander not only the police but Tara. He made her seem like the type of person who would run off without her kids, calling her a bad mother. Oh my god! Yeah, he even he legit said that he was. That he was like, this may sound weird, but I was a better mother than Tara. But she was, like, you know, for work she, she was had gone to travel for her job. Yeah, yeah. But he said that she never came home to visit her kids except on weekends. That she missed all of their events, which Tara's sister denied. She said that she always came home for all of their events, like soccer games, any like anything that they had to do. She yeah. tried to come home to see. Well, yeah, yeah, but. Like, unless they have you outside of the country. Yeah. Yeah. So, during all of this, a former girlfriend turned over to the Detroit News recent emails from Stephen Grant in which he mocked marriage vows and offered to let the woman, a nursing student, practice sponge baths on him. Ew, gross. He also raised questions about his wife's relations with an old boyfriend and an older man at work. Grant... You just sound jealous. Yeah. In the media, Grant dismissed the emails as foolish, but joking. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. He... Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and, like, these emails were, like, really surprising for a lot of people because everybody in the media saw him as, like, this doting father and this really good husband. So seeing those emails kind of, like... Threw him for a loop. Yeah. The police didn't get a warrant to search the Grant family home until two weeks after Tara Grant was reported missing when they believed they had probable cause to, like, believe a crime had been committed there. And in early March, police executed a search warrant on the Grant's home and found a portion of Tara's dismembered body hidden in a plastic bin in the garage. <gasps> yeah. yeah. No. While Just police no. were still searching the house, Grant fled. Yeah, what a dumbass. Yeah, like, You've he got was, the like... body in your garage. He You're... was legit, like, oh, yeah, come on in. And while they were out there, he's like, I will be right back, guys. And poof, gone. He had fled the area in a pickup truck he borrowed from an unsuspecting friend. On March 4th, 2007, two days later, a cell phone call Grant made to his sister was tracked and he was located 
280 miles away in Emmett County, Michigan. With the assistance of United States Coast Guard helicopter crew, he was pursued and captured by local, state, and federal authorities while hiding in the Wilderness State Park. Clad only in pants, shirt, and socks in the frigid northern Michigan weather, Grant was suffering from minor frostbite and hypothermia at the time of his capture. Because he had no jacket. Yeah. Wait, wear you, your jacket, You just guys. had a shirt and pants and socks. He didn't even have shoes. Dude, wear your shoes, wear your jacket, wear your hat, wear your <laughs> gloves, wear your scarf. I'm sorry, I just completely... Sorry, like, if you're going to try to evade capture from the police, you should at least, like... At least put shoes on. I mean... At least put shoes on. Like, what did you... What were you doing? Like, house slippers, something. Anyway, Stephen Grant was taken into custody and airlifted to Northern Michigan Hospital, mm-hmm. where he was hospitalized for a brief period of time. According to the authorities... During his hospitalization, Grant gave a full confession, explaining in detail how he had first fought with Tara Grant before strangling her. He said he then took the body to his father's tool tool and dye shop, where it was dismembered. Ugh, gross. He said he then took- this is the- this is the part you're gonna remember about this. Probably. He said- he took the remains to nearby Stony Creek Metro Park in Shelby Township. Mm-hmm. and disposed of the body parts there. However, he learned that police would be conducting a search in that area, so he went back to the park, dug up all of her body parts, Ew. and took them home, where he hid them in black plastic garbage bags in those tubs in the garage. So, according to his spoken and written confessions, Stephen Grant killed his wife during an argument after... According to him, she had slapped and belittled him. He was released from Northern Michigan Hospital and was transported to Macomb County by a convoy of sheriff's deputies. On March 6, 2007, Grant was formally charged with one count with one count one homicide, murder in the first degree that is premeditated, and with count two disinterment and or mutilation of a dead body. The charge of count one homicide in the first degree that is premeditated is punishable by life in prison. The charge of disinterment dismemberment is punishable by up to 10 years in prison or a $5,000 fine or both. Nice. Yeah. On April 13th, 2007, Grant, Stephen Grant's confession was re- released to the public, including the entire conversation he had with the authorities and a written confession that he gave police. Tara's family decided that her children will be able to read the confession when they're adults. Which, if it's been released to the public, they can Google it. It's not hard. Yeah. So wait, who got the kids? Did her family get the kids? Grant's sister was given authority against her estate, and she's filed a wrongful death suit against Stephen Grant. On June 13th, 2008, Stephen's father, William Allen Grant, committed suicide in Capac? Capac? Capac. Michigan, from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Early reports indicate that William Grant was seeking some visitation with the two grandchildren. Also, he's saying that she lost her looks. He definitely lost his looks. Jesus. She really did not, because I saw a picture of her and she was gorgeous. Yeah. On Friday, December 21st, 2007, Stephen Grant was found guilty on the charge of murder in the second degree. On Thursday, February 21st, 2008, he was sentenced to a minimum of 50 years in prison 
On March 30, 2010, Grant lost his final appeal in state court, leaving intact the original sentence of 50 to 80 years. In March 2015, U.S. District Court Judge David Lawson denied Grant's petition of unlawful imprisonment, where Grant claims that police improperly obtained his confession in his hospital bed as he was being treated for hyperthermia and exposure, and also denied Grant's claim that pretrial publicity made it impossible for him to receive a fair trial. Lawson said that officials in Macomb County took extraordinary measures to ensure that a fair and impartial jury was selected. That's the story of Stephen Grant or the murder of Tara Lynn Grant. Happy and Valentine's Day! And it's been three years. Or three years, 13 years. So, Rachel, what's your story? Okay, well, you know, I had originally intended to do my story for this super awesome, amazing holiday special. Yeah. as the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. However, (laughs) when I was actually looking at the information, there was so much information that I felt like I needed to dedicate more time to it. Therefore, guys, that story is for another day. However, I, of course, needed a topic today. So, that topic is Cupid himself. Yay! Yay! With a mouthful of chocolate. Mm-hmm. All right. My sources... The way Cupid one-on-one it. <laughs> Valid, yes. My sources are wikipedia.com, britannica.com, history.com, holidayinsights.com, museumhack.com, and ancient.eu. Cupid in classical mythology is the god of desire, erotic love, attraction, and affection. I thought he was a fat baby. (laughs) Well, we'll get there. (laughs) Cupid is one of three figures who all represent desire, love, and affection. Uh, Those three being Cupid, Eros, and Amor. What about Aphrodite? We'll get there. (laughs) (laughs) Aphrodite... She's in the story. Look, I've just gotten really into Lore Olympus, so uh, I yeah. just... Oh, but that's so inaccurate. Okay. It's not meant to be accurate. I know, but it's so inaccurate. But it's so good. In Greek mythology, Eros was the god of love and, more precisely, passionate and physical desire. He would select his targets and strike at their hearts, bringing confusion or irreplaceable feelings. Mm. He is most often represented in Greek art as carefree, young, beautiful, winged, and crowned with flowers. Aww. According to Hesiod, who is the famous Greek poet who wrote Theogony, Eros was one of the primordial gods who, along with Chaos and Gaia, speaking of guys, I have a goat named Gaia. <laughs> Where's your goat named Eros? I don't have one named Chaos or Eros, no. Chaos would be cool. Chaos would be cool. Next goat. Uh, And the three were responsible for creation. So there are two stories of how Eros came to be. One says that he was born asexually, hatching from an egg. Another is that his parents were heaven and earth, Ares and Aphrodite, night and ether, or strife and zephyr. There are multiple parents for this guy. If he was born the sexual way. The sexual. <laughs> the, sexual uh, the intercourse way. 
In fact, one early Greek writer contradicted himself by saying that Eros welcomed Aphrodite into the world. Then in another poem, he wrote that Eros was the son of Aphrodite and the youngest of the gods. So his mom is also his daughter. Yes. Yes. Fun fact here. Eros was considered the specific protector of homosexual love. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) While Eros was is most commonly seen as, you know, the rugged youth with the wings. Later on in depictions of art, he started to appear as chubby and boyish Ah, and baby-like. Gotcha. And that's, you know, kind of where the imagery comes in. He fat baby. Yeah, fat flying baby. Fat flying baby. And that part I do touch on at the very end, the fat flying baby. In Roman and Latin literature, Cupid is usually seen as the son of Venus. And we all know Venus is the most beautiful, like Aphrodite. Mm -hmm. There are conflicting remarks as to who the father is. One source says that Falcon, the husband of Venus, is the father of Cupid. Hmm. However, another says that there were three Cupids, as well as three Venuses. The first Cupid was the son of Mercury and Diana, the second of Mercury and the second Venus, and the third of Mars and the third Venus. Apparently, this third Cupid was the equivalent of Enteros or counterlove. I only point this out because in so much art where you see Cupid, there tends to be more than one Cupid. Yeah, it's normally like three, right? Yeah, and it. I mean, this just kind of ties it in because apparently there are three. However, in much later classical traditions, Cupid is often regarded solely as the son of Venus and Mars, whose love affair often represented an allegory for love and war. Oh. Yeah. Because, you know, Venus, beauty, love, grace, Mars. Girls go to Venus. No, that's not right. Girls go to... (laughs) Mars. Boys go to no. Jupiter to get more stupider. Girls go to Venus to get less penis. <laughs> I don't know. No. Boys go to Jupiter to get more stupider. Girls go to Mars. No, it's to get, to get more. more stupider's last. It's girls go to Venus to get more something, and boys go to Jupiter to get more stupider. Girls go to Mercury. Oh, maybe it's Mercury. <laughs> Boys go to. Jupiter. Jupiter to get more stupider. Girls go to college to get more knowledge. Boys go to Jupiter to get more stupider. <laughs> oh, I was wrong. That's all I could find. I was so wrong. Uh, I was originally boys go to college to get more knowledge. Girls go to Venus to get more penis. <laughs> what if I'm trans and I go to Uranus? Checkmate. <laughs> That's a comment that was That's put a here. Comment. That's great. Nice. Oh, jeez. Nice. Noise. Noise. All right. Uh, so it was right about Venus and... Yeah. Cupid, like arrows, has wings. This is because lovers are flighty. Ooh. And likely to change their minds. That's right. Don't trust no bitch. No, don't. No. <laughs> He's often portrayed as boyish because love is irrational. And apparently young boys are irrational can confirm as someone who has a 15 year old brother can confirm to be fair young girls are irrational too yeah all kids are irrational people adult everyone's everyone's irrational irrational. yeah 
Cupid is sometimes seen wearing armor similar to that of Mars, the god of war, and his father. (laughs) His father could be his son. May not even be related. (laughs) Oh, suggesting that there is a parallel between warfare and romance. Ooh. Ooh. Or, you know, even to symbolize the invincibility of love. Some literature actually portrays Cupid as callous and careless. And he was generally viewed as beneficial, mainly because of the happiness he gives to couples, both mortal and immortal, due to shooting them with arrows. Yeah. The worst he ever was is that he is considered mischievous in his matchmaking. However, this was mainly directed at his mother, Venus. (laughs) Cupid is also often depicted as blindfolded or described as being blind. However... Not really in the case of being, you know, sightless, mm-hmm. but more so because... Love is blind. Yes. The sight of the beloved can be a spur to love. Sweet. This is actually described by Shakespeare in A Midsummer Night's Dream. Hey, hey, hey. Love looks not with the eyes, but with, but with the, the mind. mind. And therefore is we Cupid, Cupid painted blind. blind. Nor hath love's mind of any judgment taste... Wings and no eyes, figure, and he haste. And therefore is love said to be a child, because in choice he is so oft beguiled. (laughs) I'm like over here, like mouthing all the words the entire time she's talking. Okay, but it's a Midsummer's Night, a Midsummer Night's Dream. I know. It's, ah, I love that one. So you haven't seen the movie, you've been in the play. Cupid's blindness is also seen in Botticelli's Allegory of Spring also known by its original Latin title, La Primavera. Cupid is shown blindfolded while shooting his arrow, positioned above the figure of Venus. Speaking of arrows, his symbols are the arrow and the torch, because love apparently wins an inflamed heart. All right. Cupid also carries two kinds of arrows, one with a sharp golden point and the other with a blunt tip made of lead. A person who is wounded by the golden arrow is filled with uncontrollable desire. But the one who is struck by the lead one feels an aversion and desires only to flee. <laughs> wow. Cupid really goes at me with that le- them lead arrows, you know? <laughs> well, here's a great example of the two different arrows. One of the stories that shows the difference between the golden arrow and the lead arrow is that of Apollo and Daphne. Ooh. So, Apollo. He is the Greek and Roman god of music, poetry, art, the sun, and is apparently a great warrior. He's also the patron saint of archery. This is very important to the story, by the way. (laughs) I'm guessing. (laughs) Apollo apparently mocked Cupid for his use of a bow and arrow, saying pretty much, what are you doing with such a powerful weapon for just being a child? Mm. It actually says, in quotes, what are you doing with powerful weapons, naughty boy? <laughs> naughty boy. <laughs> <laughs> that equipment of yours is fitting of our shoulders, which are able to give certain wounds to wild animals and to enemies. I, who recently killed the swollen python, who is pressing down 70 acres with his disease-bearing belly, with countless arrows... You'll be content to provoke some loves by your fire, not to lay claim to my honors. This, of course, insults Cupid. Of course. He then prepared two arrows, 
because obviously Cupid's petty like the rest of us. Yeah. <laughs> he then prepared two arrows and, well, he shot Apollo with the golden arrow. Yes. And it just so conveniently happened that the river nymph Daphne was walking by. Apollo falls madly, head over heels, passionately in love with Daphne. Cupid then proceeds to shoot Daphne with the lead arrow. And this just instills the deepest hatred for Apollo. Ooh. However, Apollo is just so madly and desperately in love with her that he just follows her around like this lovesick little puppy and won't leave her alone for anything in the world. Hmm. Daphne had actually rejected many potential lovers and... Instead, she preferred to take part in woodland sports and exploring the forest. That's right, Daphne. That's right. That's right. Ooh, that's right. She also took on the role as Emula Phoebus. She had dedicated herself to perpetual virginity. Ah, yes. Yeah. However, her father, the river god Peneus, demanded that she get married and give him grandchildren. However, she begged her father to let her remain unmarried. And he eventually complied. Apollo was continually following her, begging her to stay, but she kept rejecting him. They were evenly matched until Cupid decided to intervene, helping Apollo catch up to Daphne. I guess he felt bad. Mm. Seeing that she had no other choice and that Apollo was bound to capture her, she called her father, Mm. asking for his help. Her father did help quickly turning his daughter into a laurel tree in order to get away from Apollo. Despite her insistence that he leave her alone, and despite the fact that she was turned into a frickin' tree, Apollo vowed to honor her forever. He felt that he would adorn himself with laurels after every victory in triumph. See, that is so like now, because every woman, they have a guy who, not every woman, a lot of women, they get a guy who is just, like, obsessed with them, will not leave them the fuck alone, Mm -hmm. but the women, the woman has to change her behavior so that the man will leave her alone. And even then, he still is like, oh my god, I just love you so much. That poor girl can't catch a a break. One variation found in the King Esquire, which is a 15th century poem that is attributed to James I of Scotland. Mm -hmm. Cupid has three arrows. Gold for a gentle smiting that is easily cured. For a gentle smiting? Smiting. Cool. (laughs) A gentle smiting. Because, you know, love is... You're smitten, I guess. I don't know. Okay. 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 (laughs) Okay. I don't think that's how that works, but okay. Okay. The more compelling silver and steel for a love wound that never heals. So, just a little bit of differentiation there. One more arrow, but it's still the same. Another story is that of Cupid's mother, Venus, becoming so jealous of the beautiful mortal Psyche Mm -hmm. that she told her son to make Psyche fall in love with a monster. Instead, Cupid himself became so in love with her that he, you know, just visited her every night, night after night. Eventually, he even married her. However, there was one condition that she could never see his face. Her curiosity got the better of her. No thanks to the prompting of her sister, as it goes. Mm-hmm. And she decided to sneak a peek one night. Furious, Cupid fled. Psyche, however, was so deeply in love with Cupid that she tried to follow him and find him. After wandering the entire known world in search of him, she found her way into Venus's temple. Venus, who was still looking to destroy her, gave Psyche a series of super dangerous tasks. And each task 
was, of course, more difficult than the previous one. So she goes through all of these tasks, and her final task was to deliver a small box to the underworld and get some of the beauty of Proserpine, who was the queen of the underworld. She was warned to not open the box. However, curiosity, again, overcame her, and she opened the box. Mm. What was in there was deadly slumber. Cupid, who was still very in love with Psyche, came upon her lifeless body. He instantly forgave her and swept the deadly slumber back into the box. At this point, she was gifted by the gods and goddesses, and she became a goddess and an immortal. Another popular story is the tale of Cupid the Honey Thief. Whenever he goes to steal honey from the beehives, he is stung by the beeves. Beeves. Good, leave those beeves alone. (laughs) He is stung by the bees. He then cries and runs to his mother Venus. Obviously, this Cupid is an actual baby at this point. Oh, yeah. Complaining that such a small creature should have caused such painful wounds. His mother then laughed and pointed out the poetic justice. He also is small, but delivers the sting of love. Oh, Yeah. This story was actually first told about Eros in the Idolus of Theocritus, but it was then retold numerous times in both art and poetry during the Renaissance time. Yay, Renaissance. 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 One German poet forms the tale as a schadenfreude, which means taking pleasure in someone schadenfreude. else's... Schadenfreude. Yes. Schaden, schadenfreude. Which means taking pleasure in someone else's pain. In a version by... Is that messed up that I would know that? (laughs) A little, but (laughs) it's not unexpected. Okay. (laughs) In a version by Gotthold Lessing, the incident actually prompted Cupid to turn himself into a bee. Hmm. This, however, is just part of the um, super complex tradition of poetic imagery, where the flower apparently represents youth. The sting of love as a deflowering and the honey as a secretion of love. Ew. And that's what I wrote you. <laughs> that's gross. It's very gross. Cupid is also often depicted riding a dolphin, both ancient and later on in art. On one ancient Roman sarcophagus, the image is thought to represent the soul's journey through death. This, however, is associated with the Dionysian religion. Mm-hmm. It is shown similarly on a mosaic from the Roman Britain. Also, I know that sounds weird, but it is Roman Britain. Okay. It's just where Britain was under Roman Empire. Anyway, this mosaic shows a procession emerging from the mouth of the god Neptune. Neptune, if you don't know, is the sea god similar to Poseidon in Greek culture. Yes. In the procession, first you see dolphins, then seabirds, all of them ascending to Cupid. 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 Cumin. Cumin. (laughs) Cumin. One interpretation of this imagery is that Neptune represents the soul's origin in which life was fashioned, with Cupid as the soul's desired destiny. In other images, Cupid with a dolphin is shown more as the playful type. In a garden statuary at Pompeii, there is a dolphin shown rescuing Cupid from an octopus. And Cupid holding said dolphin. So it's a baby holding a dolphin? Yes. That's funny. <laughs> like, you know, hugging. Hmm. But you know the, the 
the you know fountains with the dolphins squirting water mm-hmm. and you got cupid up top and a little clamshell well, whatever okay yeah that's kind of what i'm talking about dolphins are also often portrayed as friendly to humans and thus the dolphin itself could actually represent affection you know with cupid's whole lovey-dovey cupid riding a dolphin can convey how swiftly love moves on or that it or it symbolizes the wild ride of love because <laughs> love a is ride. a roller coaster also like everything else christians do mm. cupid was demonized Oh, poor buddy. To adapt for a more Christian use, medieval mythographers interpreted Cupid morally. In this view, Cupid can be seen as the demon of fortification. Sweet. Theodolf of Orleans reinterpreted Cupid as a seductive and malicious figure who exploited desire in order to draw people into the underworld of vice. That's my dude. That's your dude. That's my dude. Cupid, (laughs) this whole paragraph gets me. Cupid's quiver symbolizes his depraved mind and his bow, trickery. His arrows, poison, and his torch, burning passion. I love it. Thus, it was appropriate to portray him naked so that one could not conceal his deception and evil. Okay. Mm -hmm. Cupid sleeping. How many times have you seen him sleeping in paintings and paintings and really... I see it sleeping all the time. My grandma has several little statues of Cupid sleeping. Oh, yeah, the... Yeah, the sleeping child. This became a symbol of absent or languishing love during the time of the Renaissance era. This uh, was seen in several pieces of art, including a sleeping child by Michelangelo that is also now lost to the world. In the poetry of Giambattist Marino... In his particular poem, the image of Cupid sleeping represents the indolence of love in the lap of idleness. Hmm. Caravaggio took a similar stance with the sleeping child, uh, sleeping Cupid, not sleeping child. He shows an unhealthy, immobilized child with jaundiced skin, flushed cheeks, blue lips and ears, and emaciated chest and swollen belly with wasted muscles and inflamed joints. What the fuck? Okay, with what I'm understanding, Caravaggio really didn't like Cupid. He did another piece, too, known as Love Conquers All, and Cupid is purported naked, trampling on the emblems of culture such as music, architecture, warfare, and scholarliness. That image is apparently based on works from an Augustan poet named Virgil stating, Love conquers all, and so let us surrender ourselves to love. While I believe that there is intelligence behind the quote, I think Caravaggio took it the entire I think Caravaggio probably got uh, spurned (laughs) and was like, fuck love, fuck Cupid. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm a paint him as a little bitch. Yep, Caravaggio, yep. Yep, yep. Okay. Moving on. By the 14th through 17th centuries, painters began creating many works of art depicting Cupid as a baby angel. Mm-hmm. Yay! This is the same imagery that has been used on Valentine's Day cards since the late 1800s. Apparently, as soon as everyone saw Cupid as a flying baby who inspires love, people went crazy for it. And this is the version of Cupid that is most familiar today. Not the strong, strapping lad with wings that Eros in Greek mythology was. Yeah. So, last fun fact, and then we're done here. Cupid's name comes from the Latin word cupre, which means to desire. 
Maybe that's why you kept on can- saying Cupid. <laughs> that's exactly why I kept saying Cupid. Cumin. Instead of Cupre. Cupid. <laughs> All right. And that is it. And I'm so sorry that that was not quite as entertaining i much preferred graces to me oh no i I enjoyed that i love all that like mythology shit so yes so all right if you enjoyed that even if you didn't even if you didn't please follow us on instagram and facebook at myths and misfortunes or twitter at miss misfortunes or you can search for us using our full name myths and misfortunes we do show up you can also send us an email to mythsandmisfortunes at gmail.com. Our music was composed by McKean Fulbright, and our art was created by Heather Marie Atkins. Their websites can be found in the description below. Please rate, please review, please subscribe. Yes. Yes. Do all please. those things. And thanks so much for listening, guys. Yes, yes. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.